In the early 1950s, an innovative young musician saw his first TV program. And when he saw that, this program, he was really appalled <laughs> uh, because what he saw was slapstick humor that amounted to people throwing cream pies in each other's faces and stuff like that. Um, but when he saw this program, something clicked inside of his thinking, and he realized that this was a powerful medium. The medium of television was a powerful medium for good. And so he decided to change his career. He was a music major and, and headed down a really promising path in the, in the field of music, and he decided to change his career to pursue a career in TV production. He found a job working for a small TV station in Pittsburgh, and there he started to produce a children's program with a co-star, a talented uh, young lady by the name of Josie Carey. And he and Josie Carey, they did this children's program where they sang songs together, and they, they made the children laugh, and they used humor, and they talked about different things. And soon, this children's program had a, a, a wide viewing audience, became very popular, and was actually the most popular show that this TV station was producing. It was what was keeping this TV station viable was their half-hour children's program called The Children's Corner. But as time went on, it became obvious that this talented young musician, he and his co-star, Josie Carey, were really headed down two different paths, two different directions. Josie was primarily interested in entertainment, and she saw a promising future for herself as an entertainer. Uh, she saw that it would be in enjoyable and, and quite lucrative, and, and so she wanted to go down that pathway. But her thoughtful co-star on this program, he saw things differently. He wanted to develop educational programming for children. See, as a child, he had struggled with fears. He had struggled with self-image. He had been, he was overweight. He had been teased for his, for being overweight. And he wanted children to know that they were special just for who they are. He wanted for them to know God's love for them. He's committed Christian. He went on actually to become a, a Presbyterian minister, committed follower of Jesus, had a rich prayer life, and he wanted young people, children, to know God's love for their life. And so he fully invested in this. He went after it, and he pursued it in a way that was the best for the children. So what this conviction led him to do was he decided that there would be no commercial interruptions in his children's program. Now, as, as you probably know, like programming lives off of the money that's brought in through commercials. He said no commercials because it's not good for the kids to be distracted. And the commercials that were allowed at the beginning or at the end of the program, he said there's not going to be any commercials that target kids because at their place in life, they're not able to distinguish between what is children's programming, programming for them and what is marketing. And so no no, no advertisements targeting children. Well, the, the TV experts and those, those people who, who worked in the industry, had experience in the industry, they said, you're crazy. You're not going to get enough money. You're, you're going to suffer financially if you, if you do this. But doing what was best for the kids and following his convictions as to what was right, serving God was more important to him. Today, you may not have heard of Josie Carey. By the way, show of hands, anybody know who Josie Carey is? Just curious. I don't see any. But chances are, you have heard of her talented co-star. 
I'm going to need someone to advance the slide. It's not working. Yeah. And if you're of a certain age in this congregation, you can probably sing along with, it's a beautiful day in the... Yeah, yeah, you know that. Yeah. (laughs) It's incredible to see the way his influence has been on our world. He's been a guest on Oprah. He spoke to the Senate, on the Senate floor, advocating for children's programming. His life has been memorialized in books. They even came out with a movie recently. Fred Rogers fully invested in the work of God. And instead of missing out, what happened? God took that investment, he took that gift, and he multiplied it. Influencing children across America and beyond. That's what happens when we give to God. Today, as we continue our sermon series, all right, works now, good. As we continue our sermon series, by the way, thank you so much for our audiovisual team. They do a great job back there. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that happens, and they roll with it so well. Thank you so much. Um, We're going to continue our sermon series called Welcoming Abundance, where we're talking about God's principles, biblical principles for receiving wealth, uh, the blessings that God has for us. As As we continue in this sermon series, I'd like to address a particular fear that uh, many of us have around fully investing in the work of God. If you're anything like me, the idea of giving generously is scary. Because I'm afraid that if I invest too much, then I'm not going to have enough left over for me to live on. Can anyone relate to that? If I give too much here, then then what am I going to live on? I mean, naturally, we want to live comfortably, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a good thing to live, be able to live comfortably. But the reality is finding the abundance that our hearts desire does not come from withholding, does not come from holding on and investing little in God's work. That's not where it comes from. Actually, abundance comes from giving abundantly. This morning, we're going to look at a story in the New Testament that shows us how this works, how it is that giving abundantly is actually the way to welcoming abundance. So the title of the message this morning is Living on Leftovers. And before we get into it, I'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, may we hear what your Spirit is saying to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of John. John 6, verse 5, if you have a pew Bible, it's up there, 1068 is the page number in the pew Bible, but if you want to pull it up on your phone or whatever Bible you feel most comfortable with is great. Um, John 6, verse 5. So at the time of John chapter 6, Jesus was wildly popular among the poor people. So of all of the multitudes that were following Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, most of those people that were following Jesus were poor, very poor, hand to mouth. They were common everyday laborers that were barely getting enough sustenance to survive day to day. They were poor people. Considering Jesus' culture, however, how the culture viewed poor people, this fact is really significant that Jesus was really popular among poor people because in Jesus' day, the Jewish mindset equated wealth with spirituality or spirituality with wealth. Those, those two went together. According to mainstream Judaism, if you were rich, you were practically guaranteed a place in the kingdom of God. They saw that riches were the blessing of God, and so if you were, you were a Jew and you were blessed by, and you, you had a lot of money, 
It must be that you were doing good things. Otherwise, why would God be blessing you? So those two things went together. Not only were wealthy people, had influence and power, but they also had, they were viewed as as people who, who were better morally in some way, spiritually in some way. Ironically, by worldly standards, Jesus was not wealthy. He was poor. He didn't own property. You know, he didn't have a home or livestock. He, he didn't have much money. But Jesus' thinking was not limited by his limited resources. We see this in John chapter 6, starting with verse 5. Look at what it says. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, one of his disciples, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? These people, this crowd that was coming towards him, they had been standing all day listening to Jesus' teaching. He had held them spellbound with the teachings of the kingdom of God. And they had listened and they had soaked it in all day long. And Jesus cared for their physical needs. He realized that they hadn't really eaten all day. Maybe, maybe they had some snacks or whatever, but, but he realized that they were hungry. And caring about their physical needs, he turns to one of his disciples and he says, where are we going to buy bread for these people? Now, since Jesus had delegated the management of money to his disciples, like he didn't carry the money bag, he, he had one of his disciples do that. When Jesus said, where are we going to provide for them, Philip thought that this was up to him, that Jesus was using this we as, where are you going to do this? He thought it was up to him and the the disciples. He thought Jesus was asking him to feed these people. And when he looked at the crowd, he didn't see how this was possible. A little while later, as as many of you may know, um, John tells us the kind of crowd, the, the size of the crowd that was there that day. He says that in that crowd, there were about 5,000 men. So very easily, there could have been 12, 15,000 people in this crowd that was coming to Jesus, this crowd that Jesus looked out upon and saw the physical hunger and said, Let's, where are we going to find food to feed these people? This was no small crowd, and, and this crowd clearly was hungry. So for Philip, when, when Jesus asked, where are we going to buy the bread? This was an exasperating question to Philip. Why, why are you asking me, Jesus? In verse 7, Philip answers. He's like, even if I were to work half of a year and give all of that to buy bread, and, and, which is an impossible thing. They were, they were poor people. If, if Philip were to work half of a year, he'd be using that every day to just barely get by. But if somehow he could work half of a year and not even touch any of that, save it up and go and buy food, he says it would only be enough for each person to have a bite. How frustrating, right? Just a bite of food. So it was an exasperating question. I mean, essentially, Philip was saying by this comment in verse 7, he was basically saying, why try? Why try? If I were to do my absolute best, if I were to even go beyond that and save up half a year's wages, what good would it do? Today, followers of Jesus, like you and I, it might be easy to feel like Philip when we look 
at the needs that are all around us. I mean, there are huge needs around us. One of the things that Jesus says before he goes back to heaven is go and make disciples of all nations. Take the gospel to the world. Think about that for a second. Think of the millions and millions of people on this earth who do not know Jesus, people who have never even heard the name of Jesus, people in communist China, people in in the areas where Islam is is the, the religion. People who do not know who Jesus is. People right around us who have heard the name of Jesus but have a misunderstanding of who he is and want nothing to do with him. All of the people that are hungry to hear Jesus that are all think about the need that is in our world today. And he's saying, you, go and tell them. These are, these are huge needs, and, and it can be exasperating to, to, to feel this, this burden that God is it seems like he's placing upon us to go and meet these huge needs that are far beyond the resources that we have, resources of time, of ability, of, of monetary resources. It's, the need is way beyond us. And yet God comes to us and does a similar thing as he did to Philip. Where are we going to find food to feed these people? But as we consider what we can do, and, and feel that exasperation and feel that and, and, and hear that maybe, maybe that question come up in our own mind. Why try? Like the, the need is so big. Why should, I, why should I try when I have so little to meet the, the need that's around me? If I give everything, it can be easy to think, what's going to be left over for me? I mean, the, the need is huge. And if I give everything, people aren't going to be blessed with what they need. And I'm not going to have enough left over to live on. Will my, be, will my gift be big enough in the matter in, when we consider the big scheme of things? But when Jesus invites us to join him to meet these huge needs around us, he's not trying to make us feel bad. He's simply letting us know that our lack of resources is not a problem. That's all he's saying. Now, I, I know that that might sound a little difficult or, or strange, at least, to say that. What, a lack of resources is not a problem when you have a big need? Of course, from a human standpoint, to not have resources when you have a big need, that is clearly a problem for us, but it's not a problem for God. A classic example of this fact is found in the story, the Old Testament story, of Abram and Sarai, when Abram was 75 years old, Sarai was about 10 years younger than him, God told them that he would make them a great nation. And as great as this sounded, they knew that there was a problem. They did not have the resources to become a great nation. They were up in years. They had tried to have children. And in spite of all their efforts, they were not able to do so. Obviously, this was a problem, this lack of resources children. They didn't, they didn't have that. This is a problem. How could their descendants become a great nation if they did not have the ability to have descendants? But for God, this was not a problem. One night, God tells Abraham, Abraham, go outside of your tent and look up at the sky. I want you to try counting the stars. So, he said, that's how many descendants you are going to have. At that moment, Abraham had no descendants. But what he decided to do was he decided to fully invest himself in the work of God. He believed God, even though it was way beyond his ability, Sarah's ability, way beyond them. 
He believed God. And because of, of his investment, because Abraham and Sarah believed, Sarah believed in God, his promise, because of their investment of faith, God fulfilled his promise. A child was born. A great nation came from Abraham. And generations later, from the woman who could not have children on her own, Jesus was born to the nation of Israel. For God, poverty in any way, poverty does not disqualify us from joining him in his work. You look at your resource, you look at your bank account, you look at how much time you have, how much skill you might have, what you bring to the table, and you're like, when it comes to meeting the needs around me, I mean, this is just a drop in the bucket. It almost, it does, why try? Poverty does not disqualify us from joining in God's work. When God's work requires resources that you and I don't have, you and I can confidently join, join him. Why? Because he can take what little we have and multiply it until it's more than enough. When Jesus saw the hungry crowd this day in John chapter 6 coming towards him, he doesn't ask Philip, can we buy bread for all these people? Notice that. That's not what he's asking. For Jesus, he, the issue is not whether the people are going to eat or not. Jesus knew that the people were going to eat. The one question that he wanted Philip to consider was where the bread was going to come from. Jesus did not have a poverty mindset even though his monetary and physical resources were limited. He says, where is the bread going to come from? And John begins to answer the question in verses 8 and 9. Look what it says. Another of his, or John, the, the writer here of the gospel, is saying this. Verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Verse 9, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will that go among so many? Although Andrew here speaks up, and he says, well, we've got some resources here. He's clearly doubtful. Look what he says there at the end of verse 9. How far will this food go? Because of this obvious doubt, in Andrew's statement, Bible scholars have read this and concluded that the chances are good that Andrew did not go and find this boy and say, oh, you have five loaves and fish? Why don't you come and talk to Jesus? That's probably not how it went down. He probably didn't seek this boy out to share his food with Jesus. Because compared to the need, Andrew saw the thousands and thousands of people, and compared to the need that he was aware of, the boy practically had nothing to give. I mean, why try? Verse 9 gives emphasis to the smallness of the boy's resource. Look what it says. It says he had, it doesn't just say he had five barley loaves. He said five small barley loaves. Even if you had five big barley loaves, it still would be just a drop in the bucket, right? Five small barley loaves, two small fish. The Greek word translated here, fish, is, it literally means a tidbit. <laughs> That's literally what it means, a tidbit. It, it refers uh, commonly to a piece of dried or pickled fish that was designed to be eaten with kind of as a garnish to bread. This meal... Not only was small, but it was poor people's food. 
Those who could afford better didn't eat the coarse barley grain. They would eat bread made from wheat, much higher quality grain, and and they would enjoy much larger portions. Nothing about this boy's gift was extravagant. But when he heard that Jesus intended to feed this this large crowd, that he was saying, where are we going to find bread? There was something that responded in this boy's heart. Faith rose up, and he said, well, I've got something here. I've got some some pieces of bread, and I've got some fish. I want to give that to Jesus. Andrew, chances are he would have gone to nearest for Andrew. Here, look, here. And Andrew's like, here's someone with five small barley loaves and two tidbits of fish. But, I mean, really, come on. He's a kid. What's that among so many? Jesus asked the question, where are we going to get the bread? And the boy had an answer. He's like, right here. For a poor little boy, this meager gift was an extravagant gift for him. Had he given this food to anyone else in the crowd, chances are this boy would not have eaten that day. This was a big gift for this boy. But when he trusted Jesus with his resources, something very special happened with this little gift. The gift multiplied. Verse 11 says that Jesus took the loaves and the fish. He blessed it, and he began handing out an abundance of food. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he passed them out to the disciples, and the disciples were the conduit. They passed it out to the people, and bread just kept getting distributed, and the disciples kept giving it until everyone received food. When they were all done, verse 11 says something really significant. It says that all had enough. Thousands and thousands of people all had enough. In other words, everyone ate till they were satisfied. And Dr. Knight, we're talking about welcoming abundance. The right kind of abundance comes from Jesus. This is a healthy food. This is a, this is a healthy meal. This is not a high cholesterol meal. This is not a meal that they would feel guilty about eating later. They were able to eat until they were satisfied and they had sufficient uh, food to, to carry them on. They were satisfied. By giving, by this boy giving his meager resources to Jesus, not only did the boy have enough to eat until he was satisfied, which I don't know he would have been, if he would have been satisfied with this meal, frankly, but he not only had enough to eat, Till he was satisfied, but so also did everyone else in the crowd that day. Now, if this story stopped here, we'd have sufficient evidence that there's a good reason to believe that we can give our minimal resources to Jesus and know that he is going to do something amazing with them. He's going to multiply our insufficient resources. But verse 13, in, in verse 13, God, John goes on to tell us something extraordinary. He, he ups the, the, the evidence that the Bible gives us for giving. It tells us something extraordinary. According to Jewish custom, after a meal, they would, they would gather the leftover pieces so that nothing is wasted. And Jesus follows that custom. Gather up the pieces, he says, so that nothing is wasted. And although thousands of people were fed from a little boy's lunch, Jesus is so capable of multiplying our limited resources that verse 13 tells us 12 baskets full of leftovers were gathered. 
Jewish people commonly had these, these large, heavy, wicker baskets that they would use to carry things. So, so these, these were in the, most likely in the crowd. They, they had these, these large baskets. So most likely this kind of a basket was used to gather up the, the leftovers. But notice, notice what the Bible says. Twelve basket full, baskets full of leftovers were gathered. From what? Where were these 12 large baskets full of food? Leftovers. What were they left over from? Five small barley loaves and two tidbits of fish. This much food. And then there's 12 baskets full of leftovers? When we give to Jesus' work, the leftovers are far more than what we have to begin with. Does it make sense to give to Jesus if the leftovers are going to be more than what we have to begin with? Do we have to worry that there's going to be enough left over for us to live on if Jesus is able to multiply what we give him? This is where abundance is found. It's not in holding on to our resources or giving from the extra that we really don't need. That was for me, by the way. It's found in giving Jesus our resources and living large on the leftovers. This is why there's a blessing in giving. Like if, when you have given and you feel blessed, you feel satisfied, you, you feel encouraged, you feel a part of something bigger than yourself, you feel a part of something that is eternal when you give to the work of God. This is why there's a blessing there. This is why there's a blessing when we return tithe and offering. We are blessed in so many different ways. This is why there's a blessing in serving, in leading out in Sabbath school, in being a treasurer for our church, in serving as a deacon or a deaconess, in being a greeter, in, in whatever ways God calls us to serve and we give of ourselves. This is why there's a blessing in it because when we give of our limited resources, God multiplies it. So it's more than we had at the beginning. When our resources are in the hands of Jesus, he makes the leftovers greater than what we had to start with. So as we consider the huge needs in our world today, it's easy to think, what can I do? I don't know enough about the Bible to evangelize. It's easy to think that our limited resources are, I only have a little bit of money. What's that, What's that in light of this big, the big needs around us? I, I'm only able to, to give a, you know, just a small portion of time. What, what, what can I do? We can look at our resources and say, why try? What difference will our little resources make? But the reality is, is just as Jesus was at work on that grassy hillside by Galilee in John chapter 6, he's also at work now. He's at work in our world today. He cares about the needs in your life, in our community, in our church, and in the whole world. He cares, and he's at work to meet those needs. And he's looking to us to participate with him Poverty does not disqualify us from being a part of Jesus' great work. Why? Because 
in his work today, we are able, what little we give, our limited resources, he's able to take that and do something amazing with it. If you give your resources to Jesus, you don't have to worry about living on the leftovers. And, and, and will you have enough? Because when we give to Jesus, the leftovers is where abundance is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting us to join you. You don't need what we have, but you give us the opportunity to experience your abundance. I pray, God, that you would open my eyes, each of my my family's eyes here, my church family, my brothers and sisters here. Open our eyes to see where Jesus is at work. Open our eyes to understand what you want for us to give. And may we be able to do so confidently, knowing that you multiply what we give and that there's more left over than what we had to start with. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.